Hello everyone, I'm Liam, and welcome back to another episode of Cinerealm. Today, I'm joined once again by my good friend Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm alright, what about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. And I think today we're going to be carrying on with the Skywalker rankings, the Skywalker Saga rankings from Star Wars, with special mentions to the spin-off Solo and Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So, Ryan, if you'd like to take us away with a little bit of a ranking of where we've got so far, which films we've covered so far. Well, on, on my list, in my rankings, we've covered The Last Jedi, Attack of the Clones, The Rise of Skywalker, The Force Awakens, and Solo. Mm-hmm. I ranked my first five, so I got six more to go. Because that, because it's really interesting that you say that. Because I've, I've only ranked my first four, and I think already we're seeing what's so interesting about the Star Wars universe is that lot of lots of fans disagree on different things, and they have these, they have these subtle differences in preferences of film. And we've only ranked my first four. Um, I agree with Ryan with the Last Jedi and the Attack of the Clones. Um, he's put the Rise of Skywalker next, whereas I put Solo, and then I've put Solo at eighth place. But my seventh. My seventh film in the Skywalker Saga ranking is The Phantom Menace. And I think one thing to take away from The Phantom Menace, which I which I really liked, was that it sort of set the framework for all these little elements of what Anakin would grow up to become. In that he start he started out obviously as a slave alongside of his mother and he was freed by Qui-Gon but his mother wasn't and when he was taken to the Jedi Council to um, be tested because Qui-Gon sensed all the midichlorians in him that he was that he was the chosen one to bring balance to the force Yoda sensed the fear in him and Anakin admitted young Anakin admitted that he gravely missed his mother and he was very worried for her and Yoda rightfully noticed and explained how that fear can be very easily manipulated and channeled into the dark side of the Force and unleashing Anakin's anger. And as we've already talked about, Ryan, with Attack of the Clones, that whole scene with the Tusken Raiders, where Anakin sensed, an older Anakin sensed the danger of his mother noticed that um, and realised that he needed to return to his home planet of Tatooine and found his mother slaughtered at the hands of the Tusken Raiders. What did you sort of think of that transformation then that we saw from the person that he was in The Phantom Menace, where he was quite a naive child and he, and he didn't mean any... He was very innocent. He didn't mean anything by these fears. But then obviously in Attack of the Clones, we've seen these fears become something much greater. Yeah, I think you can see how much being away from his mother affected him. Because obviously, when you think about it, he was basically kidnapped at nine or ten years old. Mm -hmm. And obviously he chose to go train as a Jedi. And like you said, when Yoda was questioning him, saying, you know, you miss, you miss your mother. Yeah. What what ten year old is not gonna miss their mother if they're taken away? Exactly. Exactly. You could you could obviously sense throughout the whole thing, even at the start of Attack of the Clones, where he was thinking about his mother all the time. Mm -hmm. And then when you see the visions he had and 
what was happening to her. He knew he had to go back to help her. And really, I thought, I, d- I don't know, really. It's a strange one. You can, you can see when he when he goes to the test guns, it's, like you say, the naivety is still, it's sort of there because obviously he's angry they've killed his mother, but uh-huh. he, he need to go and slaughter them all, do he? So you can see the kind of, the naivety is still there. Yeah, it was. No, it we, was. It was his first thought. I think it was. It was his first thought in that he didn't properly think about how his actions would be um, received by the other Jedi, especially his master Obi Wan Kenobi, and obviously by Padme Amidala, who he was meant to be protecting. And I think ultimately, I I think perhaps even though it was in anger, I don't think in Attack of the Clones. Anakin fully appreciated how much anger he possessed, and I don't think he quite knew. And I agree with you, there, there is still that sense of naivety in that he didn't fully understand. He thought he was doing something that was just protecting his mother and avenging his mother's death, but in reality, he was actually demonstrating how he was embodying so much more of the dark side more and more, and that he just didn't necessarily want to admit to it, really. Yeah, it was the first the first step to the dark side, really. I thought, what a, a little subtle hint to what would happen to him in The Phantom Menace is right at the end, when Senator Palpatine is elected Chancellor, mm-hmm. he says to Anakin, baby Anakin, by the way, mm-hmm. we will watch your career with great interest. That was the... You, you just, you hear that and you're just thinking, oh... You know, you see a 10-year-old child, you know, innocent as anything, and then to know exactly what he becomes. I know, and that's the, um, that's the, that I think is the interesting thing that we should, we should always take away from the prequels, and obviously we'll, we'll go on to discuss the the final, um, prequel, um, member, Revenge of the Sith, in a bit, but... For now, I think what what the prequels did, which is something very significant, is that we knew the story of we knew the story that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father after the twist of Empire Strikes Back, and we and we knew that eventually the Sith would be um, defeated and the balance of the Force would be restored. Well, obviously, balance in the Jedi's eyes is full Jedi control, <laughs> and we and we obviously know from the sequels that that didn't quite work out in the long term. Balance but... was restored until Disney came along. <laughs> but, um, but, but with the prequels, it was just about how we knew what was going to happen. But what we were most interested in is how they were going to be portrayed, and I think we've talked about a big positive there in that. The the prequels sort of set the foundations, drip feed in through the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones from Anakin and characters around him, sort of teasing what we knew he was going to become. But there was, excuse me, still that growing anticipation anyway. But one thing I don't think that we talked about, which was a massive negative for me, and which is why I probably placed the Phantom Menace at seventh, in my opinion, is that. It was, it was the young Anakin's performance. It was the performance of young Anakin, and I, I understand right. And you, you've actually got some mixed feelings about young Anakin. So what do you, what do you think about him? Yes, 
I like how they started the entire story with the main character of the entire thing, Darth Vader. Starts as little Anakin Skywalker. I like I like that that part of the story, but I think with the portrayal of him, really it could have nothing against Jake Lloyd because obviously as a ten nine ten year old actor, you know sometimes it's hard to pull off, so, you know a strong enough performance for such a huge franchise. Mm. No, so that, that's a fair, that's a fair argument. I mean, I think there could have been improvements really. In parts of it, all the all the bloody yippies and pod racing stuff. Do you know what I mean? The the pod race, the pod racing was okay. I didn't mind. It was. I think one of the Phantom Menace's biggest flaws is it was it was a lot to do with the um, a lot to do with the scripts that the actors were given, and that they were they were very cringeworthy. And I and I don't think that that necessarily helped you McGregor's performance because. As as a young Obi Wan Kenobi, he was excellent in that film, and I think as the films went on, he sort of grew more and more into the role, and because he grew more and more into the role, I think it was a testament to maybe not necessarily the script got better, but he got more comfortable reading sort of these you know these silly sort of scripts that obviously you know at face value the Star Wars scripts are to a lot of people they just like as as Harrison Ford famously said to George Lucas when he was presented with the script for A New Hope, George, you can write this shit, but no one's gonna say it. Um, <laughs> and we all know, and we all know how that went down. And um, and I I think the the way the reason largely Hugh McGregor's performance suffered quite a lot, and Jake Lloyd's performance suffered as well, even though taking into account obviously that he was a child actor is it was a lot down to that script and a lot of cheesy disjunct dialogue that largely felt out of place in the film i think yeah you have you have your bad not necessarily bad acting but i'd like natalie portman in the fandom i thought was quite bland but she was she bland grew she grew into her character a lot more i personally didn't actually think there was anything wrong with you one well, you that's fair, big, that's fair. You have your big names then, like Liam Neeson. Oh, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson was absolutely fantastic. Made the, made the film. He came up... There's always a bigger fish. He came up with that on the spot, by the way. I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> Ian... you, have, you have your big bad, Ian McDermott, who obviously Ooh. knew his role really well because he's already pr- portrayed Palpatine. So I thought the way he, he came in and played his role, I thought... He was a standout in the entire, not just the prequels, but the entire franchise standout performance in every film he was in. Palpatine, you know, you McDermott. But I um I I I have to I I went back um I went back a few months ago and I rewatched the Phantom Menace and there is some god awful CGI in that film. Oh my yeah. god, especially in especially in the for Jar Jar Binks. And oh, it's oh, it's just you you watch it and it's I'm not sure if um if you've seen it right. Actually, I think we um I think we talked about this in um in episode two, the Scorpion King, with um Dwayne the Rock Johnson, where he sort of comes out looking like a, a video game character. It was a lot like that for a lot of the characters in the Phantom Menace, and I I appreciate that it was 1999, but 
come on, it, it felt a bit like a daisy color. It didn't fe- feel like Lucas was really taking advantage yeah. of the budget that he had. You know what I mean? Yeah, I thought. The, can I just say the puppet Yoda that they used in the Phantom oh, Menace no. was the worst thing I've ever seen on a TV screen? Oh, it was awful. It was awful, the, the wasn't CGI it? Of Yoda, I thought, was the best part. The CGI was that was fantastic, and I'm I'm glad that in the uh, in the in the ed- edits that have been made in more modern times that they have replaced that sort of crap puppet Yoda with the CGI Yoda. Although I think we should talk about um, the use of the puppet Yoda in the Last Jedi. <laughs> that felt more like the original Yoda, though. You think? Yeah, the original Yoda, obviously a puppet, back in the 70s and 80s. And then it kind of, it felt more like that, with the one for The Last Jedi. It looked a lot like the old Yoda, rather than the 1999 one. A, n- a new Yoda that's just a new puppet sort of thing. That's, that, that's, that, that, could, that is an interesting way of looking at it, yeah. I thought when you talk about, you know, you mentioned Jar Jar Binks with CGI mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I thought if we're going to obviously talk about some new characters that we first see on the big screen in Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. You have your diabolical pieces of shit, like Jar Jar. <laughs> Jar Jar had his funny moments. We get introduced to this bad, mysterious... Oh, please, please say his name. Horns on his head, oh, double blade. You know what I'm God, talking about. So cool. Big he, man himself. It was... Back back in the day, before the the sequel trilogy was a thing, and before Solo and Rogue One, and before there was really any clarification from Disney that they were going to be, um, even before um, Star Wars was actually sold to Disney by George Lucas, um, it was back in the day. It was ranking the six films. It was just the first, the the prequel trilogy, and the original trilogy. And obviously, out of those six films, most fans would probably agree that. It is the it is the first two films of the prequel trilogy that largely go to the bottom of that pile, and I often when I was younger I had a lot of discussions with my friends debating whether whether Phantom Menace was worse than Attack of the Clones or Attack of the Clones was worse than Phantom Menace. Honestly, I th- the, and obviously as I've done in this list, I place Phantom Menace much above Attack of the Clones purely because. The Phantom Menace, in my eyes, and I'm sure Ryan will agree, was massively, massively saved by Darth Maul. Big time. I thought... It's, the Phantom was a strange round, because when I first watched it, the first few times, I thought, yeah, this is... This is not great. This is one of the... One of the bottom films out of the series. Exactly. But the more I've watched them, do you know what? I don't mind Phantom. Mm. I think it's a, it's a, one of the biggest criticisms. Criticisms it's got is the politics in it. It's quite, you know, it is quite political. But I gen, that's one thing of the part of the film I genuinely enjoy because I don't really see it as you know politics and all that boring stuff. I see it as Palpatine's first step to power. You, when when you, you say when you when you watch a Star Wars film, you you come for the action and you come for the storylines. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's got to be the story has got to be up there really for me to pay attention. And I think 
Yeah, off off topic a little bit. Obviously, um, you know, I studied history in college, mm-hmm. and a big focus of it was Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. the rise of Hitler, and Lucas have said the the empire is largely based off that. So seeing Palpatine rise to power and the Phantom Menace being his first steps, you know, using his manipulation to go from senator to chancellor up to the top and work his way from there. It is reminiscent of what happened back in Germany. And that's is one thing I genuinely enjoyed about the film. I th- I think that throughout the, the trilogy and you've got the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones and the, the Red of the Sith... Especially in Attack of the Clones, we saw it where he obviously planted the seed with the clones and he um, had the hidden execute Order 66 seed planted in them as chips. Um, there was a lot of work in behind the scenes of Palpatine. And from early on, considering how Palpatine is, and I and I want to focus on what you what you mentioned about with how he said to Anakin at the end of The Phantom Menace that we will we will watch your career with great interest and i think that you could sense that palpatine knew because he was obviously we we didn't we 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 knew but it wasn't explicitly stated that he was this very this very powerful force being because obviously he had become palpatine the sith lord and we knew what he so we knew that he could sense the potential in anakin and we knew how he would mi- go on to manipulate anakin and Manip- and manipulate him to the dark side and i think what is quite sinister in fact in that for the fa- for, fa- for the phantom menace that manipulation started very early on it it started long before revenge of the sith in fact long before attack of the clones where anakin didn't have too much to deal with palpatine in the second film it started in that moment on the parade steps in- of naboo in the phantom menace in my opinion yeah, definitely. You have it's a subtle hint because if you watch it, if you're watching it for the first time, you could look at it and think, yeah, you know, if Qui Gon thinks he's the chosen one, that's what he's been called throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. You would think, obviously, yeah, you watch him, you watch his career as he grows to see what he comes becomes uh, becomes into. But then, when you hear Palpatine say it, and you know who he is, what he's about, you know, there's a dark meaning behind it. Exactly. Like he's literally, he's already, he's looking at a 10 year old kid saying, You're going to be my apprentice. You're going to rule the galaxy with me. Mm. And it's, it's really dark. And that's one thing I like about Palpatine and why he's probably my favorite villain in movie history. Just running everything in the dark. It was, the shadow. it was, it was everything. It, it was everything behind the scenes. And yeah. obviously, I mean, I, I don't think it would be. When it, when it was remin- when you said about how it was reminiscent, I I think obviously there's you know nothing that you could really com- with with the tra- well obviously there are there are a few moments throughout distant history, but obviously the tragedies that happened with the Holocaust and everything were truly dreadful and truly unforgettable. But especially in 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 Adolf Hitler's early years when he was a member of a member of the um, the German Workers Party and 
everything else and when there are all these subtle things going on behind the scenes like you said with George Lucas how he was sort of inspired by what happened in Nazi Germany to, to write a, a similar character I think we, we saw a lot of similarities in that regard with Palpatine in that it was those subtle rise to those subtle rises to power those few things but going on behind the scenes that went on to dictate what happened in the future yeah I will say as well while we're on the topic of this film. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can have a decent conversation about The Phantom Menace without mentioning what is probably the greatest duel, one of the greatest duels probably ever seen on a cinema screen. Mm. It was that... And it, it's the it's the music in the background. It, it's the it's the duel of the fates. The, that strong, heavy horn motif that comes in when those doors slide open, and immediately, the film goes from a bang average film to okay, this is actually pretty good. And that final duel sequence, that final lightsaber sequence between between um, Qui Gon and Obi Wan against the Sith Lord Darth Maul, the final showdown, that we had a little bit of a taster of what Maul and Qui-Gon could do when they dueled, but now this was it. This was the final battle. And and I think as well, it was it was really interesting to see, even though the puppet Yoda was dreadful and abysmal, and this wide CGI especially with Jar Jar and a lot of, other the cre- a lot of the other creatures on Naboo was largely dreadful as well. I think... In terms of like the lightsaber combat and how they did that stunt work, it was a massive step up from some of the older films. The choreography was perfect. That's what I think. That's what honestly, when you think about it, probably saved the Phantom Menace mm. because for a film that is, you know, I enjoy the Phantom Menace, but it is a pretty average film if you're going to be brutally honest. So it needed something at the end to. St- kind of put it to put it bluntly yeah to save it and they delivered with a banging fight at the end oh it was it was brilliant if you've gone on to watch the clone wars and everything you'll see it starts the rivalry between obi-wan and more exactly because the the rivalry and and how more becomes much bigger into it in um in um, the Clone Wars, and obviously he features in Solo too. He goes on to have much more of a prevalent role. But it was, it was just that moment. I can remember seeing it for the first time when he holds his lightsaber out to the side, and then the red beam comes out of it. And I'm just like, right, okay, and yeah, this is gonna be cool. It's it's a it's a Jedi Sith fight, and then the lightsaber comes out the other side, and you're like, oh, this is gonna be good. This is gonna be so good. Yeah, double bladed. The first. The first double blade you see in Star Wars, and to be honest, probably the best lightsaber. I would, I would say that's that. Yeah, that's probably because it was just so cool. His premise it's was so cool. You see it. Amazing. And I and I I definitely think that well, one thing that I loved, which which probably would have been silly to to a lot of people, I loved that after Qui Gon had been murdered and. Um, it was just just after the the sort of laser panels were were about to turn off and allow Obi Wan to rush in and um, take out Maul when he was stood there waiting to go in and they and they had the and they um emitted the lightsaber beams and and they were just bobbing up and down looking at one another. <laughs> 
did you notice that? I I thought that was I thought that was quite funny. To be fair, I thought I just wanted to um to mention that briefly. But um, but I think I think we've pretty much exhausted the Phantom Menace. Now we talked about yeah. the good and the bad, and I think in in my rankings it probably is better than the other four, but it's not quite up to scratch to the other six. And I think Ryan will Ryan will obviously disagree because he had a different film for the seventh, but we will go on to explore what awaits us in the next six rankings. So once again, we are neck and neck at the same level, me and Ryan. We've discussed our 11th to 7th in the rankings, but now it's time to move on to the final six. And I think we'll let Ryan start us off. Ryan, what is your sixth, sixth ranking in the Skywalker saga? I'm actually going to let you go because my sixth is the Phantom Menace. Is it really? That's um. We've just gone deeply into that. We, so. we, we've just gone deeply into that. Well, um, what my my sixth is um, my sixth is the Force Awakens. And I know, I know you you've you've covered that, but I I think it would it would probably serve us just a little bit as sort of a a memory jogger to those who've um to to those from the from the last podcast. Um, I think the reason I put the Force Awakens above the Phantom Menace is that it was for me it was it was just it was an average film. You know, it was it it had its strengths, it had its weaknesses. There was nothing particularly dreadful about it and there was nothing particularly fantastic about it although i think one big savior and one thing that i did really like um was once again the return of harrison ford and like like we talked about with with anakin those subtle undertones of him going to the dark side that i think one of the strongest things was that dynamic with harrison ford and then obviously with his son um, played by Adam Driver, um, in that with the Han Solo, Ben Solo slash Kylo Ren dynamic, where Kylo Ren was sort of this mysterious character, and I like that in the build up to the film coming out, we didn't know who Kylo Ren was, and there was actually an interesting amount of speculation that Luke Skywalker was Kylo Ren, which would have been good and bad because obviously it would have just been a complete recycle of Darth Vader but it would have been also interesting to see how he had gone down that path but he didn't and it was a new character Kylo Ren who we eventually learned was the troubled son of Princess Leia and Han Solo played by Carrie Fisher um, and Harrison Ford respectively and it's that scene where they break onto the Starkiller base towards the end of the film it's Chewbacca, Finn, Han Solo, and Rey. And Han Solo is confronting his son on that on that walkway. And and you can see in Adam Driver's acting, and we've and we, we talked about this obviously in the last episode, so I'll I'll skirt over it a bit more briefly, but you can see in his face you can see that he is wrestling with himself, that he doesn't know quite what to do and it's it's that saddening it's that saddening twist almost that and i think it was a break of cliche where we half expected him to forgive and put his lightsaber down but in actual fact he surrendered more to the dark side and ultimately killed his father what do you think about that ryan 
Yeah, ultimately, I said in the last episode that one of the reasons why Kylo was such a good character, I thought, is because of how conflicted he was. Like, he literally, quite literally said in that scene, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what he wants, I think. He obviously, he wants to, you know, he's wrestling towards the light because he knows that's really what he should do. But he thinks he's worrying he's too far gone. He 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 almost there's an element I think as well that he wants to become very early on in the Force Awakens we see that in him killing his father and the guilt of that that plagues him through the Last Jedi and the Rise of Skywalker and ultimately leads to his redemption in um, the Rise of Skywalker. I I think that he he sort of like you said he was definitely they were concerned that he was too far gone and he wasn't sure how he would ever be able to redeem himself but then it was almost that he was there was this subconscious voice where he had sort of the angel and the devil effect going on in his head and he was forcing himself to follow the devil we don't really know why but it was just he was sort of just going with what his gut wanted and he was letting his anger drive him but I, I do definitely agree with you, and I do think you make a really interesting point that ultimately Kylo doesn't really know what he wants. Yeah, one thing about Kylo when he's, um, you know, you talk about his anger, what drives him. We did, we see him obviously kill his father, but really we don't have any idea why he was angry at Han Solo. No. Because we see... Obviously, we see in The Last Jedi, the reason he turned to the dark side was because he felt betrayed. Because Luke is standing over his bed with a lightsaber. Because mm. he's thinking, oh, he's got dark side in him, better kill him off nice and early. And really, it's that that sent him down the dark path. So you don't really understand why he's angry at his father. Really. No, and I, I, I think, what I think is particularly interesting is that it was a... It was a different dark side descent to Anakin Skywalker in that there was obviously a lot of climactic build throughout the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and the Rise of Sky and um, Revenge of the Sith. Um, that Anakin was obviously building th- these little motifs and these little instances where he was succumbing to the elements of the that made him such a powerful um, ally of the dark side of the Force. But Kylo Ren. What I think is interesting about Kylo Ren is that he sort of demonstrated what a lot of Siths, Sith fighters are actually like. In that Kylo Ren's anger was largely very hollow and misdirected. That he was angry, that he was frustrated, but he didn't really have anything angry to be too much about. To, to be angry about too much to the people that he was directing his anger towards, like you said, with his father. There was virtually no reason why he had to be angry at his father. There was no reason why he had to kill his father. He could have literally just said there and then when his when his father begged him to come back home, you know, fuck off, <laughs> to put it bluntly. But um, no, he didn't. He actually just he actually just decided to kill him, and it was that that he was. It felt, it felt meaningless. But I think that was what made him such an interesting character. That he was so confused and so in constant conflict with himself that he didn't really know what he wanted. And that's why I sort of give it the 
the edge over over the Phantom Menace in my rankings. That the Phantom Menace we saw we saw Anakin start to become something that he didn't want to be, but he was probably going to be. Whereas Kylo Ren became something that he wanted to be and that he was forcing himself to be when he really didn't need to be that at all. Like you said, with Luke looming over him with the lightsaber, it was largely a case of, in my opinion, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, it's, like you said, it's different in a way to Anakin's turn. Because Ben Solo really is his anger is really is towards Luke, but he's kind of taking it out on everyone else. Mm-hmm. Whereas Anakin obviously was angry and frustrated at the Jedi Order. We'll dive, you know, I'll dive into that more deeply when I get to Revenge of the Sith. But you can see this different, they turn in different ways, really. Different reasons. I I I think that I think because what watching it over over again you can see the first order are like recycled stormtroopers the star killer base is a recycled death star the whole concept of the first order is just a recycled empire and at face value Kylo Ren looks like another looks like another Darth Vader but there is so much more to his character and all that anger and rage and that temper. That scene especially where Rey escapes on his ship and disappears and he spends that time in the room just slashing about and just breaking everything. That was a for me, that was a really poignant moment. I'm not sure I'm not sure what you thought moment. I think that that was a that was a poignant moment where we saw firsthand that he was just his anger was out of control and it was unmeasured, even for a Sith. And he and it just showed there and then that he wasn't a typical Sith, and he wasn't ever from the get go set out to become a Sith. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. I don't really, I've never classed him as a Sith. Mm. When you think of the Sith, you think of Darth Maul, Darth Vader, Darth Sidious, Darth Tyrannus. Kylo Ren, he's like, he's kind of gone off to the dark side in a different way to me. Do you know what I mean? We've never seen that sort of anger from anyone. Mm-hmm. At that at that point, when he's slashing all the controls, I agree. At one point, it's you know it's important important part of the story to see where he's kind of going with it. But on the other hand, as well, I was just laughing, thinking <laughs> he's just an angry child. Yes, he, he is an angry child, but I think that's what made made his character so interesting. And even even in the Last Jedi, when he goes on to kill Snoke and makes himself supreme leader, you still get that sense that he isn't fit to be supreme leader, and he knows in himself that he isn't fit to be supreme leader. He never feels he never feels comfortable in that role. And I don't think I don't think that's necessarily bad acting from Adam Driver because Adam Driver is an excellent actor in his own right. I think it's more to do with that character's continuing in a conflict with himself, almost. Yeah, there's, like you said, with the recycled, you know, it was like a recycled Death Star. It was at one point you were thinking it could have been, Kylo could have been a recycled Vader. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of why I put Phantom Menace above The Force Awakens, because 
obviously, as I enjoyed the Force Awakens, it was a you know nice reintroduction to Star Wars, but it is to obviously they were playing safe. It is very similar to A New Hope. Yeah. Whereas Phantom was completely new, completely original. I preferred the new characters that were introduced, except mm-hmm. Jar Jar. He was shit. Didn't like him whatsoever. Because you've um you've you've actually you've actually read my mind there because I was gonna go on to say um in regards to your sixth ranking, excuse me, which is the Phantom Men, is why you would put that film above um the Force Awakens, and I I do think what you what you say is interesting about the characters. Do you want to maybe draw some more comparisons along that or? Yeah, it is. The characters in the Force Awakens, the new guys we get, we have Ray. Finn, Kylo Ren, and Poe Dameron, they're the main new characters we have. Yeah, largely in the first film, I would agree, yeah. Yeah, I like I liked Kylo Ren, he's my favourite new character. In The Force Awakens, I liked Rey. Yeah, I liked, I liked Rey too, I did. I powerful for no reason. I liked, I liked Finn, I was disappointed how he was built up, we've said this before, how he was built up to be... The new main character, and then he ended up being a side character. Yeah, that Rainy that Rapper. was that was a massive letdown. And then Poe Dameron, I thought I liked him in the first in the Force Awakens. Didn't like him in the others. Thought he was arrogant. He was in a different way to Han Solo as well, because I know Han Solo was an arrogant prick as well in, in A New Hope. But I thought there was something about Poe. He's just I don't know. I didn't. I didn't connect with him like I connected with other characters in the saga. And then we've got, when we say new characters introduced in the Phantom, Qui-Gon was new, who was an amazing character. Um, obviously, Obi-Wan's not a new character, but in a different part of his life, obviously, he's, this is when he's young. So it's interesting seeing that. We see Anakin instead of Vader. Obviously, we meet new characters along the way. Mm-hmm. New Jedi, Mace Windu, by big man Samuel L. Jackson. There's, I think, a lot more, I think, enjoyable characters, really, to see. Apart from Jar Jar Binks, I did not like him at all. <laughs> I've said it too many times, but he's... he's no, I, I, I... The thing is, I think with... With any, any TV show, or... Or any film, it doesn't really matter whether it's whether it's something like a sitcom, like like Parks and Recreation, or The Big Bang Theory, or if it's a more serious TV drama like Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, etc., or a big blockbuster film like the Star Wars franchise. You you have to have characters that Comic the relief. audience. Pardon, say that again. Sorry. Comic relief. That's what he was for. For the kids to sell toys. Who now? Who you want about? Jar Jar. Oh, Jar Jar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. it was you. You've got to have characters who who serve a big purpose. They can be a comic relief, but it's got to be a well constructed comic relief. And I, I think that was Jar Jar's downfall. But in the bigger picture, you've got to have characters who the who the audience can gel with. And I think. Even though I would place, even though I would, I would personally still place the Force Awakens above the Phantom Menace because I liked that dynamic between Harrison Ford and Adam Driver and that sort of complex mixed up um and troubled Sith sort of half Sith half vigilante half rebel kind of character that um Kylo Ren Ben Solo was 
but I, I, I think that it's it's a difficult one because I. I think the problem with Rey at the start, Rey had a lot of potential, and Rey was a very interesting character in the first film. And like you said, right, I I really liked her too, but they made a massive oopsie then going forward that they made they made Rey too powerful without too little of an explanation. It wasn't necessarily the problem that she was as powerful as she was. It was just there was no reasoning behind it. Exactly. If you're going to be powerful, give us a reason. But I, I think what I, what I particularly liked about Rey in that first film is that she wasn't this overly powerful, stupidly mysterious Jedi character that we saw in in the Last Jedi and the Rise of Skywalker. She was, she was just Rey. She was a loner on the planet of Jakku. She didn't have any family. She was just this mysterious scavenger making her way through the wreckage of a Star Destroyer and encountering Finn for the first time. I, I think I think the introduction of her character and the way she had those couple of playful little interactions regarding regarding um Han Solo and that where Daisy Ridley and Harrison Ford had that banter between them where Daisy Ridley was asking Han Solo all these questions like some like a fangirl and it was it was quite a sweet moment and I I liked Ray in those moments I liked that kind of Ray but the problem was for me is that her storyline was largely rushed and they made her they made her too powerful too quickly and it was almost as if even though the promotional material built Finn up that and and then obviously Ray came along and was the one who held the lightsaber in her hand and fought Kylo, even though that was quite she she seemed too overpowered for a novice lightsaber fighter, as you mentioned in the last part that Kylo had had at least some training, but um Ray was like a nobody, she was just a scavenger who didn't really have any understanding of the concept of the force. I think that what going on to like I said, which is why I ranked the Last Jedi as the eleventh. Rian Johnson, I think, made a mess of Ray's power, and I think J.J. Abrams had a a different, more gradual vision for how Ray would go on to become to progress and become the New Age of the Jedi. Whereas Rian Johnson's example sort of felt very rushed. Yeah, what I. I agree with your point when you said she was like a fangirl to Han Solo. It was cute. It was really cute. And that was, I did enjoy that because I thought, you know, by now, obviously, Han, Luke Skywalker, they're famous names in the galaxy now mm. after what they did um, in the original trilogy. So then when she meets him and she's like, you're Han Solo, it is like, it's like meeting your favorite, you know, celebrity. Mm-hmm. And a living legend right there in your eyes. And part of, I think it was in the same scene or just after, where they told him about the map to Luke Skywalker. And for Harrison Ford, obviously, legendary actor, you could see why he's so good. Mm -hmm. Because when they mentioned Luke's name, he just kind of stopped and was there thinking, damn. That was was another reason why I. Why I, I probably put the Force Awakens. Sorry, say that again. Just when he stopped, when they said Luke's name, and he stopped, and he was remembering that his now his brother-in was his brother-in-law, yeah, and his his best friend throughout the entire thing, 
apart from Chewie, was missing. And he just, he was like, yeah, I knew Luke. Just, it was not like, not like he was mourning him, because obviously Luke's not dead, but he was like, you could see how much he was missing him. I, I, I think, I think what, 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 why, another reason probably why I would put The Force Awakens above The Phantom Menace is that largely, like you said, with Harrison Ford, he slipped. He slipped really well back into that role, and he was sort of that humble but sort of, you know, arrogant sort of smuggler that he that he played in the original trilogy. He slipped back into that role really nicely. That he, It was quite comical that he didn't really want to be acknowledged for what he had done. He didn't really want to be recognised. He just wanted to go back to his old life and disappear again. And I thought that was quite... A very typical route to take Han Solo down, and I think that is the route that obviously the fans would have. The fans, to be, in my opinion, I think that was the route that, that a lot of people would have liked for him. That Han Solo would have taken taken his medal, taken the glory, but ultimately gone back to just keeping to himself and just largely, you know, living with his Millennium Falcon and himself and Chewie and Leia, etc. And having his small little bubble. He didn't want to be this this huge hero throughout the galaxy. He was he largely wanted to just stick to himself. And I think that life that we saw Harrison that Han Solo sort of slipped into post Return of the Jedi all these years later in The Force Awakens was a really nice way to present his character in my opinion yeah I thought really the way they handled their characters and slipped back in I thought was all all around in the story um, Kylo Ren's turn to the dark side because obviously I think Luke handled that really badly because obviously he just went into exile you know new phone who dis just gone didn't mm-hmm. want anything to do with anything cut himself off Leia I think handled it well obviously she went back to doing what she did you know leading the new resistance and I think his son turning had a big effect on Solo that's why he went back to doing what he said he does best mm-hmm. just going about his business smuggling obviously he lost his falcon at some point along the way then Mm-hmm. Just, you could see how much everything affected him with obviously he said at one point Leia didn't want to see him you know he lost his son to the dark side Luke is gone somewhere it's like he's on his own all he's got is Chewie it, it's, it's when he it's when he said it's true all of it that you could see the sadness that the glory days of that old that old rebellion were long behind and with the rise of the first order he had just seen that history had completely repeated itself and he was so he was so defeatist yeah is it is depressing really but it was but that's um to be honest, that's all I I've really got to say about the Force Awakens. But I I I think we can obviously as we as we mentioned in the last episode, it's probably the strongest out of all of the sequel trilogy. But I yeah. think there were I think there were there were bad elements in it. Perhaps maybe Ray was perhaps a little too powerful. But then also she wasn't powerful enough and blown out of proportion like in the later films. And Harrison Ford and Adam Driver both gave standout performances. And also, it was really the only time we really got to see John Baker at his full potential. 
And I think that was a really nice thing to see. We've ranked our 11th, 10th, 9th, 8th, 7th and 6th Star Wars films. And now we are down to the final five. And me and Ryan both vehemently agree that these five films really are, really are the cream of the crop of Star Wars. And our top two, our top two are, are, are no-brainers. In my opinion, are no-brainers. But the, the the next three are extremely close together and are it it was excruciatingly difficult to separate one from another find criticisms for one over another so and i and i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to overlap our rankings and talk about them at mismatched times now that we're getting on to the, the real cream of the crop of star wars so we're going to talk about the next three films together and after talking about those three films we'll have a little bit of a discussion and compare our rankings for the next three films because they largely just about differ from one another and i think it would probably be good to spend a good some good quality time on each of these films talking about them and what they mean to us so we're going to start off not necessarily in fifth place but the next film um the next star wars film it is the spin-off rogue one a star wars story and right off the bat with this one i just like to say i didn't i didn't necessarily have too high expectations they weren't they weren't they weren't really that they weren't really that high i saw the trailer i didn't like what was done with the theme tune the theme tune sounded a bit weird that um the the take that michael giacchino did on it but and it, and it, and it followed the force awakens and as and as time went on with the force awakens the the the, the mist sort of settled out of your eyes and we realized that it was in a lot of aspects pretty overhyped but I saw this film and it fucking blew me away. Oh my God. And to this day, I can't speak for The Mandalorian and Star Wars and, and The Clone Wars. Unfortunately, I haven't properly seen both of those. But in terms of a film, this is the best thing that Disney have done since buying Star Wars. I can't talk about how much I absolutely loved this film and how impressed I was by this film ryan what 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 are your what were your initial expectations going into rogue one um yeah i i think i agreed when you said force awakens obviously the first star wars film in 10 years it was overhyped so this one rogue one naturally because of the performance of force awakens the year before expectations were quite low we didn't know what to make of it you know we see these new characters being introduced in the trailers. We didn't know who they were, what to make of it. And I think this one was actually underhyped big time. Oh, it was, it was massively like, underhyped. I, the, I came out of the cinema when I first seen it and I couldn't stop smiling of how because of how good it was. And I think like you, I've seen Mando and the Clone Wars properly. And personally for me... The final season of the Clone Wars is the best thing to come out of Disney in terms of Star Wars. I, I've I've read I've read a lot of different things where people were talking about that, so I, I think that's a fair comment. But if you if we're going to talk about films that they've released, then Rogue One is definitely top. 
by a mile. I, I think, you, you know, it was what what I think was was nice about this is that it was, it was the first installment of like a Star Wars anthology series, and they were on they were walking on very familiar ground. It wasn't like the sequel trilogies where they were sort of making up their own thing. That in reality, as we mentioned with the Force Awakens being a little bit of a recycle of a New Hope. This was on common. This was on familiar ground. This was the Star Wars storyline, the saga, the original saga that we knew and loved, and it was filling that bridge very nicely. Following Episode Three, where the Sith had risen once again and taken control of the galaxy, and the Jedi were few and far between, and it took place just before A New Hope, following a group of sort of ragtag smugglers trying to trying to find the plans to the Death Star, which is ultimately the weapon that is destroyed by the Rebellion in um, in A New Hope. And I think, right off the bat, I want to talk about the cast for this film. Right off the bat. You've got Felicity Jones, who played the lead of Jyn Erso. You've got Diego Luna, Ben Mendelsohn, Donnie Yen, who were, who were all amazing in supporting roles. And then Mads Mikkelsen as well. Mads Mikkelsen, Le Chiffre, ha- um, Hannibal, such an awesome actor. And it was so great to see him, to see him attached to a Star Wars film. It was awesome. And, and the re- little bit of a relationship that we saw with his daughter and the, the opening to Rogue One as well, I thought was particularly powerful. Yeah. What I, what I'll say about the cast, I think, Ben Mendelsohn, I thought, was my favourite in the film. I thought Krennic was a brilliant character. Oh, Krennic was awesome. You could see you could see he was powerful, yet he was still extremely disrespected in the ranks of the Empire, especially by Tarkin, who literally made him his bitch. And what I liked what I really liked about the film, it was I think a perfect balance between original and prequel. Exactly. The prequels where you have Bail Organa, which I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark in there. Um, they're still building the Death Star, so it's still, the Empire is still really new. And then obviously you have elements of the originals, where you have Tarkin used from um, the CGI. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, um, that, that's at the a... very end, you have Leia as well. Yeah. Which was really... Obviously you've got Big Man Vader. We we got we'll get we'll get onto him in a bit, but yeah, Vader. They were, they were great elements. I think it was a perfect mix of original and prequel. That's why it was such a good film to fit in between. And and I think what you said about Ben Mendelsohn and the character that he played with director Krennic, I I think Krennic shared a lot of similarities with General Hux, but the difference between him and Hux is I hated General Hux. Throw all of uh, all of the sequel trilogy. I don't know what there was. He just he just really rubbed me up the wrong way, and I just found him extremely irritating and annoying. I just found Krennic and the way Krennic was portrayed was just he's so just more a, interesting. He's got a bit of I like Hux, by the way, but he's he's got a bit of a punchable face, have not he? <laughs> you just, you just want to. Squash his nose over his face. He's going. I think. Faces. I think that was the idea because he was. He was playing sort of like a smug leader of the the first order, and I think Domin, Dominic Dominic Gleeson, the way he, the way he played him, um, was, 
um, was like that. He wanted to portray this sort of stuck-up, arrogant leader of the First Order. But with Krennic, it was interesting because with Ben Mendelsohn, he was playing this more, this more troubled leader of the Empire. And you mentioned um, about the CJ recreations of Peter Cushing. It's really interesting because I've just been taking some notes and the CJ recreations were actually, in a lot of regards, actually criticised. But I think... Even though you could very clearly tell they were CGI, I think the the inclusion of Peter Cushing and retaining his legacy as Tarkin was very wholesome and a really sweet callback to the original trilogy. Yeah, it was. I think it was. It was needed because it is the film is based at the start of the Empire's reign, really, mm. and obviously Tarkin was high ranking in um, the Republic. So obviously when Palpatine turned the Republic to the Empire, obviously he was a high-ranking Imperial officer, so he would he would need to be there, but you can't recast him because of how iconic he was in the very first film of the series. Exactly, exactly. And I thought, the, the layer at the end, I thought that was really nice, considering the year it came out as well and what happened to Carrie Fisher. Mm, just I know. Uh, I think the CGI looked better with with Tarkin. I think you could you could kind of tell Leia's was more CGI than Tarkin's was. Well, what was clever about Tarkin's is that he was largely on the the dark um, bridge of the ship, and you, and you, and he was in the shadows a lot of the time. Yeah, I thought I just loved the kind of dynamic between Tarkin and Krennic. I thought it was perfect. You could see Krennic obviously. Obviously, as a high-ranking imperial officer, he was he military, uh, military commander or something. So obviously, he was high-ranking, but he was still looked down upon by Tarkin, who was probably the at the top. Obviously, you had the Emperor and Vader. After that, it probably went Tarkin. So he kind of looked down on everyone just in an arrogant way. He had that, um, what's the word? Mm. The presence. In the room, and 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 Krennic tried to replicate that, and it was always Tarkin who was bringing him down a peg or two, wasn't he? Yeah, he's like, sit the fuck down, you bitch. <laughs> I um, you, you know, I a lot of people talk about the um the era of the old Republic, in that that was such the the golden era, you know, and and that it was a great era of Star Wars. But my favorite era is this era of hostility that's largely very dystopian between episode three and episode four because i my favorite genre of literature is without question dystopian i love the handmaid's tale 1984 man in the high castle all the classics the, the list goes on brave new world and i love the uh, the concept of a dystopian world where it's a utopia but things have gone so wrong and it's these analyses like of winston in 1989 or june in the handmaid's tale of these characters who were caught in the crossfire of that and always end up at a loss and i love those brief moments of hope that are created with them the resistance movements in in the handmaid's tale and with made it with the mayday movement and then the, the brief moments of hope in 1984 as well, alongside the man in the high castle where these these visions of uh, a brighter a brighter America where they actually won the war and they're not under occupation from the Nazis, and I and what I love is that 
that in a similar way, this sort of strand of of the Star Wars universe is has that similar dystopian feel where there are very rare moments of hope where there's a lot of hostility, there's a lot of tension in the world. There's this very powerful force that seek the sort to make everything perfect. But as we see for the rebels in Rogue One, it's actually, it, their lives are actually pretty terrible and pretty hard done by. And it's, and I want to make a comparison as well to actually a Star Wars video game that both myself and Ryan have played that came out recently last year called Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, which follows a Jedi, a Jedi Padawan, as he races to find a holocron and recover the names of four sensitive children throughout the galaxy. And this was set during this era of hostility, shortly after Episode 3 and before Episode 4. And I think what is so interesting about this era of Star Wars, relating to what I've talked about with those themes of dystopia and uncertainty, there is so much that you can do here. With with Rogue One, with Jedi Fallen Order, with hopefully the upcoming Kenobi series, there's a lot of different stories that you can tell within this particular timeline. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that big time. I think in between um, three and four, when with the transition of Republic to Empire, the early years of the Empire, there's a lot you can explore with. Lots of different stories you can go off to. I think after now after playing Fallen Order, I think obviously it was come out years after Rogue One. Mm-hmm. But imagine if they put Inquisitors into Rogue One some way. Oh, that would have been unbelievable. But it wasn't. He wasn't necessarily a Jedi, but he was knowledgeable in the force he would have been interesting to look out for for the inquisitors i i think i think to be honest this this sort of universe where there is like what we've seen with rogan one and with jedi fallen order and what we will hopefully see with the kenobi series this sort of universe in the middle this timeline in the middle shows really that disney are probably at their strongest when they're making these storylines based off of content that's already made, and they're using this framework either side and letting their minds run wild in the middle. And I think, like you said with the Inquisitors, I think going forward you can make TV shows about the Inquisitors, excuse me, you could make um, films that are set before the events of Rogue One, after the events of Jedi Fallen Order. You could make lots of stories following these little clusters of rebels, these little clusters of hope that are spread throughout the galaxy. And it's just, and ultimately, at its heart, Rogue One is this story of how the rebels are dealing with the fallout and the loss of everything that has happened. Everything that has happened post episode three this very new world that they are living in and it's and even though rogue one is set far beyond episode three it was really resonated extremely well how it's such a fraught complicated relationship that the citizens of the galaxy still have with the stormtroopers and the empire yes it's a strange one really I think the way they deal with the the fallout of obviously what happened, you see there's mentions of little things. You know, you have when Bill Organa mentioned 
um, the Purge, Order 66. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you ask about Kenobi. That's when you get... There's reason there behind the famous help me Obi-Wan Kenobi. The mm-hmm. message from Leia is... You finally see the reason behind it and why he contacted him. You could see the dire situation they were in. Even at the at the very start of the Empire's reign, you could just see their power because they were struggling from the very start. And there's, like you say, there's little bands of, well, not necessarily heroes everywhere, but, con- well, consider terrorists, really, if you're going to be political about it, spread it across the galaxy. Um, you know, going against the Empire. Obviously, you've got the Rebel Alliance, the main ones. You've got Saw Gerrera's Band of Extremists on Jeddah, which I thought, I think, with Forrest Whitaker, he did a good job of Saw Gerrera, but I think they could have gone on, gone into him a little bit more, really. I, I think, and I think it's interesting that you talk about Saw Gerrera in particular because Saw Gerrera had a supporting role as well in the Fallen Order video game in this sort of shared timeline. And I think maybe maybe a storyline of Saw Gerrera could be interesting because we we first meet Saw Gerrera in Rogue One after after um Mads Mikkelsen's character Gaila Nurso um is is discovered hiding on the Planet Life Moon where the Imperials sort of eventually track them down because they want him to want him to complete the Death Star, and obviously, as Star Wars fans who've seen um, the original trilogy, the, the prequel trilogies, we know what this weapon is capable of, and immediately we are fully immersed back into this world. And luckily, even though Maz Mikkelsen's wife is killed. His daughter, Jin, played by Felicity Jones, is rescued by the rebel extremist Saw Gerrera. And many years later, um, Jin reunites with Saw Gerrera. But it's, it's, it's to be honest, it's a dynamic that should have been, that I I would have liked to have seen explored a lot more, actually. If there was one, perhaps, criticism maybe that I could take away from Rogue One, it was that sort of relationship wasn't explored more. But... I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think it opens up the possibility, especially because we've got a flavour of what he did in Jedi Fallen Order, where you could perhaps make a TV series that sort of ties into what he did in Fallen Order, what he did with Jyn Erso, and what obviously he eventually became and obviously sacrificed himself to to um, help with the rebellion. Yeah, this I think it's open to interpretation with that. I think that's why they kind of left it. Because mm. obviously, um, Jin said to him when they were reunited, the last time she saw him, he abandoned her. You know, he gave her a pistol or something. Because mm-hmm. he knew she'd be safe and he just abandoned her. Yeah. And you're wondering, in that time space, you know, when he did sort of raise her a little, how how he went about it with everything else he was doing as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in foreign order... You know, to put it bluntly, he was a terrorist. So it's, I feel like they could have been gone deeper more into his story, how he was, you know, as disfigured as he was, what his motivations were, you know, outside justifying the Empire. It's, it is open, really, I think. It, it, is, it is definitely open. And, and it's like with... It's like where they are. I'm. I'm fairly certain I've read it somewhere. There is a. There is a film in development following. Um, 
Cassianando, who is played by um, who's played by Diego Luna, his his character is going to be set up for a a sort of a, a show or a film of his own, and I, I think I uh, think like you say that again. Sorry, he's on Disney Plus. He's got yeah. I think I think that's going to be really really interesting to explore too. There's a there's a lot of different things going on here, and there's a lot of different different sort of plot lines and storylines that Rogue One set up, and I. I think in a lot of ways that's what made Rogue One so special. There was this sort of linear plotline that was running throughout, but then there were all these other characters, all these little side plots that we didn't necessarily get to see explored, but they were open to the possibility of some sort of future production of a TV show or a film. Yeah, what I like... What I... It's a weird one. I think at first when they announced the Cassian Island or whatever series, I was thinking, what? Why? You know, <laughs> spoiler alert, but everyone dies in Rogue One. So, you know, where can you go with it? But now sitting here thinking, actually, because they didn't explore much, and he, when he's, you know, he was talking about his past a little bit, how, we, how long he's been in this fight, you could maybe explore what he's done previously, how he joined the Rebel Alliance, how he met K2, who outstanding performance, by the way, from Alan, was it Tudyk? I can't say his name. Alan, Alan Tudyk, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, but I'd like to see how we met, how Cassian met K2 in that series, if they go down that route. Because mm. I thought he was, a, <laughs> he was the funniest part of the film, big time. Outstanding performance. Oh, he was yeah, he was he was great. He was sort of like the the anti he the anti C three PO, but he wasn't fully bad. It was it was quite funny. It was really funny actually to see. Yeah, what I like they didn't they didn't try and replicate um obviously three PO. Obviously he made a little cameo on the film, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. But they didn't they didn't copy him, they didn't go like for me. A bit, a little bit off topic with the sequels, but I think BB-8 is kind of like he's a, a little similar to a kind of an R2D2 kind of droid to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have K2. I think they went completely off another way with him because I he was not, you know, I've never seen a droid like him in Star Wars before. He was completely different, original. Mm. It wasn't like a three PO. He was just, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Well, you, well, you, you make you make a really interesting point there, actually. Now, now I'm thinking about it more and more because I'm what the more I think about it, and and the reason why I rank Rogue One so highly amongst all of Disney's films is that I think the last ultimately, whether whether you love them or whether you hate them, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker, in a lot of aspects, were very heavily reliant on the original source material of the Skywalker saga, of those storylines that were made before. Rogue One, in a lot of aspects, in, in nearly all of its aspects, was its own thing, with its own ideas, and with its own characters who had their own unique personalities. You had K2, who, as you said, was so different from C-3PO. Um, but then, like, you had BB-8, who was too similar to R2-D2 in The Force Awakens. You had Rey, who was almost too similar to um, Luke in sort of this, you know, this um, 
um, this for this force user who didn't really have a clue what was going on. You had in in a lot of aspects, I suppose you could argue that Kylo Ren was was vaguely reminiscent of Darth Vader. Christ, even the even the starting planet of Jakku practically looked like Tatooine. I mean, I mean it was. But but then but then with Rogue One, Rogue One was something different entirely. But then it still but it still found such a great way to use those little characters of Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, three PO, Vader, as we'll talk about in a moment, Leia Organa and Tarkin, in such a tasteful way because they didn't dominate. They didn't dominate the plot. They just supplemented and they let the rest of the cast shine themselves in my opinion exactly i think like you say rogue one is like and obviously it's not kind of an original story because it's based on what happens at the start of a new hope it's you know they're after the death star plans we know what they're about but it is in another way like a completely original story it's, it's based itself off already you know, there's the original source material, but it's gone a completely different way with it. Mm. And like you say, with when you said Jakku was similar to Tatooine and the introduction of new planets, new characters, when you think about it, Rogue One introduced the entire, well, the entire main cast were completely new characters. The only planets we see that are, we've already seen were Mustafar and Yavin 4, I'm pretty sure. But we get introduced to Jeddah, Scarif, um, Edu, I think one of them. You get there's plenty of new, new planets and new materials just come out of nowhere. Exactly. And then exactly when you think our original characters, our our fan favorites, they make appearances, but like you said, they don't they don't dominate because the new cast needs to be given their chance to take the film in their own way, and that's what I really loved about Rogue One. How it did feel like. It felt like an original Star Wars story. It did. It felt like you was in a galaxy. You have your your characters making an appearance, but it just felt like a completely new, a new story, a new adventure. And and that's why that's why I, I hold it in such high esteem because it wasn't it wasn't a typical shitty film spinoff. You know, I don't even need to go into how god awful the American Pie presents films are, but. It was it was a it was a spin off, but then it wasn't a spin off. It was just its own original star story that could coexist in the Star Wars universe. It wasn't a spin off of anything because it was its own thing, and that it's and it can be held in such high esteem, and that's why I would rank it as one of the as one of the best Star Wars films. Yeah, because of I think because of where it is in the timeline, literally. The, the end of Rogue One is literally the start of A New Hope straight away. Yes. So it's kind of like A New Hope Part 1 and Part 2, if you look at it like that. But in a way, it's, like you say, it's, it's his own film, an anthology, completely on its own. It follows the story of stealing the Death Star plans. Obviously, that's what gives him hope. Mm-hmm. But it's just gone completely in its own way and said, I'm going to go this way. I'm not going to rely on base material too much i'm gonna mm-hmm. feel bits of a year in there and then see where i can do with it see where i'll go with it i think they smashed it oh, oh they smashed it. and you know <laughs> we've been 
we've we've been on this we've been on this for nearly half hour now, but we 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 can't we can't not talk about Darth Vader in Big this man. film. You know, I I um it was it was actually my mum who'd read it, and she told me she said, um, "Liam, did you know that um." James Earl Jones is recording, um, is is doing the voice recording for Rogue One, and I'm like, shut the fuck up! I'm like, whoa, this is oh my god! And I was, and it was that first, it was that first moment when, when Krennic arrived on Vader's castle, and then you see door open, and you see this silhouette, and you see this cape, and this man walking. And then you hear the music in the background and you hear the breathing and it sends shivers down your spine. Literal yeah. shivers. The Imperial March when he walked through was, oh, you know, it makes God. me stand up. The one thing about Vader for me in that film, they spoiled it in the trailers. I would have preferred it if there was no Vader at all in the trailers because mm. you already knew he was going to be in there. If there was no Vader at all in the build-up, and then you see that in the film, I think there would have been a better reaction. Just out of nowhere. You know, the James Earl Jones coming back with the most, probably the most iconic voice in cinema. To just drum straight back in. What what I loved, what I loved about Vader in this film is that all the Vader only served one purpose and he only needed to serve one purpose. And that was being really fucking scary. In that this was this was post Order sixty six. This was only a couple of years after Revenge of the Sith. Like in Jedi Fallen Order, this was a really fresh Darth Vader. This was this was before A New Hope, before Empire Strikes Back. This was Vader when he was when he was extremely powerful, and this is and it was just the showcase of what this Sith Lord can actually do and how how devastating he can be to any rebellion. They just they had to fit a lightsaber in there at some point, didn't they? Oh, you went oh that that, that it was ship at the end when it breaks down and the doors jammed, they can't get out, and you just you can see them looking down a dark cor- corridor, and it's like silent. You hear a couple of footsteps, I, oh, goosebumps. Then you hear a bit of breathing, and you're like, oh, oh no, oh no, and then the lightsaber, <laughs> oh. and it was. It was the sound of the lightsaber as well, that raw Sith emitter sound. You see the fear in eyes because they know the door is stuck and they know they're fucked. Because he's just walking down casually, swinging his blade, a couple of false talks here and there. Yeah, I love the part where he just where he just grabs the guy and just throws him up against the ceiling. As I said, he just he just served. No other purpose than just being so like, overly powered. Like a minute-long scene, if that, and just the, yeah, you know, just the, the power of the scene, just how incredibly strong it was, and what a strong way to end the film. And that because was... Needed, as good as the film was, you needed a kind of a big climactic ending. Oh, end. yes. only like... 30 seconds to a minute it did exactly what you wanted it to do you know I, I, I think it, it perfectly set up a new hope and that's what that's what I like as I mentioned you know 
with the with the sequel trilogy in a lot of aspects they were very heavily reliant on those original star wars plots and those original characters that came before especially with han solo han solo and chewbacca were very prominent in the force awakens and they tried very hard to include as much han solo as they could before he was ultimately killed off but darth vader as you said it was just a minute scene and it was a few minutes before that in his confrontation with Krennic. And that's all we really saw of Vader throughout the film. And that's all he needed. And it was perfect. That's all we needed to see of him. Just enough to remind us, having not seen this character for so many years, of what he was capable of. But then, as I said, there was enough distance there that he could let the other cast members shine. Yeah. The one... The one other thing I want to mention about Rogue One is obviously the ending. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like I said before, spoiler alert, everyone dies. Just when you see, when you hear him say um, something large has entered the atmosphere and it pans onto the Death Star, you're thinking, oh, fuck me. There's no get out of this one. They're done. They're done for. And then when you hear Krennic say, not Krennic, sorry, talking. You may fire when ready. You're like, oh, it's over. And what I love about that scene, I'll go back to the dynamic between Krennic and Tarkin. Mm -hmm. When Tarkin gives the order to fire on the planet, the strike directly hits Krennic. And to me, that's like that's like Tarkin giving Krennic a final fuck you. <laughs> Right. See that see that gentleman over in the white robes? Yes, let's just concentrate all firepower on him and get everyone else caught in the blast. Lovely job. That's what I loved about it, because even though obviously it killed her, killed everyone else on the planet, it just hit credit and that's that to me was like Fuck you. Don't mess with me. Oh, it was just it was just awesome, wasn't it? Am, it was just I am the boss. I am the big man, not you. And it was that it was all oh, that. It was that. Um, that final moment after Darth Vader had obviously um, Tantive Four had escaped, and you saw on the ship where the rebels were sort of running through it, running with the codes, and then you saw this robe, this gown. You didn't. See, you didn't see who was behind it, but you saw it was white as virgin snow, and you knew. You knew there and then when the camera panned round, and you saw Kai Fisher just look up and say, "Hope." And it was, it was just so perfect because it was, it was just, it was scratching a, it was scratching a very long lasting itch that a lot of Star Wars fans I think were very glad for. It was just tying in that little bit into A New Hope to provide just a little bit of context to the start. It was, it was flawless. Yeah, you have, it kind of introduced, it's the perfect ending and it, perfectly introduces what is probably known as one of the most iconic you know intros in the history of cinema where you have the Tantive 4 flying over Tatooine and then the massive ass Star Destroyer mm -hmm. fill the screen as it goes over at the start of A New Hope it perfectly introduces that and you see how at the end of Rogue One they're all kind of happy they've got like quite literally A New Hope they've got the plans and then straight away at the start of A New Hope, they're shot down because, you know, Star Destroyer's there and they've so nearly got the plans and they've got to literally improvise on the spot on what to do with it. It was just, 
it was just so and the screenwriting as well and the screenplay as, as I as we talked about with the Phantom Menace earlier on that it this this the writing felt very disjunct but with this the writing felt very comfortable the actors felt very comfortable in their characters it was just a very well done film in all different aspects of filmmaking and in all aspects of being a Star Wars film and everything that a Star Wars film should be. Just want to shout out as well that who was the who did the scores in Michael something in it? It was Michael. It was Michael Giacchino. Yeah, just a shout out to him as well because to have iconic music from John Williams built the entire thing to then have to jump in to a Star Wars film and do your own kind of your own um take on it while sticking to the star wars field made by john williams i think you know what a job he done with that well with he he has i can tell you now he has one hell of a repertoire he did the scores for the pixar films ratatouille up and inside out and i'm listing them here he's he's done several films from mission impossible jurassic park star trek um, Super 8, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Doctor Strange, obviously Rogue One, and he's also done more recently Spider-Man Far From Home. The man knows his way around a piece of music, and it was fair to say within this we were in largely safe hands. But I agree with what you said, Ryan, that undertaking the job, no matter how accomplished and how good his repertoire is, as you can see, it was a mammoth job taken over from John Williams because it was such an like that theme, that Star Wars theme, was just is just so iconic and how he, how he so graciously slipped into it and how he very eloquently and succinctly used those little motifs of Star Wars throughout the the reminders of hope with the rebellion with Darth Vader and the Imperial March. It was it was just again flawless. And you notice as well, when he put his own spin on it, it didn't have the classic main title from Star Wars. It Rogue One had his own kind of theme at the start. Didn't it? It didn't have, exactly. Exactly. It didn't have an opening role. And then when it did say it came up with Rogue One on the screen, it had his own kind of his own kind of theme and it still felt like Star Wars without copying John Williams. It was, honestly I mean, um, Ryan, me me and you, we could sit here all day. And we could literally talk about Rogue One, and that's we've only we've only talked about the first seven, and we we we've still got we've still got four more and four more giants to go from the Star Wars Skywalker saga. So on that note, I am going to draw this episode to a close, and there's not much left for me to say other than once again a massive thank you for Ryan for joining me and helping me with this. No problem, I'm loving it. Good, 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 and um, we will be we will be back again with another episode soon, talking about our next two rankings, um, and then we we'll just we'll just see where it goes from there. But for for now, that's all from me, and I just like to say once again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any queries, feel free to message me on Instagram at the Cinerealm Podcast. Or alternatively, you can always email me at cinerealmpodcast at outlook.com. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, also feel free to give me a rating because that'll really help me out. But yeah, so thank you all once again so much for listening. And I will see you for another episode, everyone. Take care.